This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And just like that, we were back. Yet another episode of Late Kick Extra. I am Josh Pate. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Five-star reviews continue to come in. Subscriptions continue to come in. I've been notified, and I didn't know people did this because I'm subscribed to like every podcast I listen to. I've been notified that some of you may listen and you don't even know you're not subscribed. Double negative there. But just do me a positive and subscribe if you haven't already to the aforementioned podcast that you're no doubt listening to right now if you're hearing my voice. And thank you for that in advance, because I know you will. We've got a loaded mailbag this morning. Stayed up a little bit late last night. I watched a movie that was recommended to me called Wind Creek. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. It sounded to me like a casino that is not too far from where I grew up in Columbus, but it wasn't. It was actually a really good movie that reminded me of Frozen Ground, which is also on Netflix right now, starring, among others, Nicolas Cage, who used to get his just due and does not anymore. Big national treasure guy, too. I digress. We have got so much to get to. Five-star reviews, as I said, continue to come in. Subscriptions to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel continue to come in. 10-second overview of the format here. It's Q&A, joshpate706 at gmail.com, at LateKickJosh on Twitter, comments on the YouTube channel itself. I aggregate all of them in two times per week, Tuesday morning and Thursday morning. We do a nice Q&A mailbag show here that many of you openly say is our best content. And you know what? If it is, so be it, because you write the show for me. So all I have to do is sit down and press record. So it was a very, very busy day on Wednesday, to say the least, in many ways, historic, to say the least. And I think (laughs) looks like that's going to extend at least one more couple of days. And I think we need to start there. So I'm going to hit you with Maxwell's question to kick us off this Thursday morning. Maxwell said, I'm surprised the Big Ten flip-flopped, and now I'm out here in Oregon, and I feel like I'm deserted on an island. Please give me hope we'll have a season. Now, full disclosure, Maxwell sent this to me yesterday morning. So a lot's changed since then. You could ask, what do you mean a lot's changed since then? This has been going on for months. How could something change that radically? Let me read you this tweet as we open the show from John Wilner, who covers the Pac-12 as well as anyone in the industry. He said, at 7 a.m. after the Big Ten announced, the Pac-12 was in a very bad place. By 7 p.m., both schools in L.A. had gotten good news. The conference was in a better place, maybe better than anyone could have predicted. What a twist, what a day, what a pandemic. What he's talking about is yesterday, after the Big Ten made their announcement that we're coming back and we will start up October 24th, the weekend of October 24th, It triggered a chain reaction, the likes of which nobody, yours truly included, expected to happen in the Pac-12. And all of a sudden, around midday, which is the morning on the West Coast, you started to hear uh, Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of California, he, um, he had a media availability, and he just said that there's nothing standing in the way of the Pac-12 playing. 
And then others come out and say, yeah, but that's just a fancy turn of phrase because while there's nothing standing in the way of them playing, there is a ton standing in the way of them practicing. They had rules out there that essentially when you broke it down, you had to practice in like groups of five or six. And some unnamed official out there actually suggested, well, you could do mental reps and you you could do five on five practice. Yeah, that's right. I didn't misspeak. Someone out there anonymously actually suggested five-on-five football practice would be adequate to get you ready to play a game. Now, those of you who have ever watched the game or played the game or even thought about the game at any kind of in-depth level know that that's absurd. So then you get further clarification as the day goes on, and you hear, uh, looks like things are changing rapidly. You say, what's rapidly mean? What, were you guys going to have a spring season after all? No, no, no. Actually, it looks like the governors and the Pac-12 CEOs, as they call themselves, They're working to rapidly overhaul any kind of procedure and protocol that will allow Pac-12 football to happen. Then you have the governor of Oregon talking. Then, as I said, you had the governor of California talking. Then Larry Scott puts out a statement, commissioner of the Pac-12, and says, we're going to expedite this. We're going to try and make it happen. And your head's spinning, and you're just like, what? And you remember the past several weeks, and you remember the past couple of months when you were told there's zero chance that we can get things underway out here. And then all of a sudden, it seems like, In a matter of a few hours, and it seemed that way because it was actually what happened, things just turned upside down, which kind of sidebar leads you to ask, what was really holding this back all along? But again, I digress. Second time I've used the digress word this morning. I digress. As long as you give me football, I I won't question you too much. So now it looks like Friday, which is tomorrow, if you're listening on Thursday at the day of this recording, looks like we got a big meeting happening out West to try and get Pac-12 football off the ground Not by the spring, but by late October. I'm surprised by that. I mean, I'm genuinely stunned by that. I'm not surprised the Big Ten finally got its act together, but that was rumored for a while. We were expecting that. But Maxwell, as you just asked, you want hope. I don't know if I gave you hope, but I absolutely think you should get hope from what's happened out there over the past 24 hours. At the very least, you should have hope. I think that this may happen. And they've got some stuff they're dealing with out there. And the problem, the hurdle that was always standing in the way were state regulations. And the fact that some of these Pac-12 schools, especially in California, they couldn't even get into their building. I don't know the last time Chip Kelly and UCLA were even allowed in their building. And so it's almost like someone grabbed officials by the shoulders and shook them and said, are you aware that this is keeping us from doing that? And they said, no, I didn't know that. Well, let me see what I can do about that once I get back from lunch. No, no, no. We need it done now. Okay, I'll do it now. It feels like that's the way that things are being handled on the West Coast right now, but at least they're being handled. So, you know, Larry Scott feels like he's looking around saying, wait a second, this is all it took all along? Yes, Larry. Maybe that's what it took all along. So, Maxwell, I think you got hope, brother. I think you got much more hope than you had this time yesterday. Butch is next up. In your podcast today, you said people thought you said Texas is back. Well, that got me thinking. If I told you one of USC, Michigan, Texas, or Miami would be back in five years, could you rank them in order of the possibility and explain why? Okay, so we got four blue blood programs here. We got four traditional power type programs, and they've all seen their time in the sun in order if Five years from now, one of them's back. Which one from most to least likely would they be? I guess I didn't need to reword your question, Butch, but I did for my own sake. 
I think Texas would be the first. Naturally, I'm picking them to go to the college football playoff this year, so I feel like they're much closer. Miami would be second. Michigan would be third. Southern Cal would be fourth. And now you asked me to explain, so I will. Texas, I feel like with the change at athletic director and then now the subsequent changes with both coordinator positions and the consistently recruiting in top 10 fashion over the past few years, I think they're much more set up to where, you know, if you have the right things fall into place from an operational standpoint, if you have things, in other words, I think Texas has fractional degrees of change that need to happen there relative to what needs to happen at some of these other programs. I think Texas is much, much closer is the reason I would put Texas there. And you'll never have to worry about passion or investment at Texas. Miami's the second one. And the Miami one's kind of a hunch. And I'll admit that to you. But it's kind of a hunch just going off some very recent recruiting momentum that they've had in South Florida. It cooled a little bit when Jason Marshall and Collier and couple of those guys from Homestead down there committed to Florida, but still there's a lot of energy about Miami. And I think they have an opportunity if they are, you know, that's why this Louisville game they play this weekend. So important. If they are to surprise some people this year and just announce to the world, at least we're back to being a factor in the ACC. To me, that's all it'll take to convince South Florida talent to start to stay home. And that is the key to Miami contending. Michigan is the third. And the reason Michigan is the third is because they are in the Big Ten, which means you don't have access readily to the kind of talent base that Texas or Miami do. That doesn't mean you can't get them, but you got to go down there to get them. And secondly, it means as much as I think Jim Harbaugh may have made the right move in bringing in Josh Gaddis as offensive coordinator and thus overhauling what was badly needed, and that is an offensive overhaul at Michigan, it's still a, an in-the-process sort of deal. We don't know that Josh Gaddis was the right hire. You have to wait. You have to, for instance, get J.J. McCarthy in, your future quarterback. You have to get receiver talent that you are starting to make inroads on and get commitments from. You have to get them in. And so Michigan, if all those things fall in place, that'd be great. Michigan's number three, though, for those reasons. Still a lot of uncertainty there. Southern Cal's number four. It's hard for me to put Southern Cal any higher than four on here, only because I think most of us would agree the current head coach there, Clay Helton, is not perceived to be the long-term answer, and I don't perceive him to be the long-term answer. They are also affiliated with a conference that, by the very nature of that affiliation, gives them some obstacles and puts some external roadblocks in their path before you even try and deal with your own issues internally. So I'd go Texas, Miami, Michigan, USC. Tristan is next. What are your thoughts on Georgia, Florida playing at a neutral site every year? I'm kind of an outsider to this event as a Tennessee fan. I've never been to the game and experienced the atmosphere. But from the outside looking in, I feel the event would be more of a spectacle if Georgia traveled to Gainesville or Florida traveled to Athens for a big game. The atmospheres would be insane. I don't think the current 50-50 fan split is dull, but it doesn't seem as intense. Tristan? I've been to this one several times. It's plenty intense, my friend. So I would suggest making that trip if you can. As a Tennessee fan, I don't know if you want to justify slashing your weekly budget by about a half or a third to buy tickets, but I would suggest going. I like it. I've always enjoyed the neutral side event only because it's unique. It's just something different. I've, I've never been a believer 
that you have to have such congruency and you have to have everything symmetrical in college football. And there's this pro sports mentality that sometimes gets applied to college football. And it's always aggravated me. You got a bunch of, I think it's done by a lot of sports writers who grew up covering pro football that were only assigned to cover college football in the last 20, 25 years once the sport really exploded on a more national level. And so they brought a pro sports mentality to covering college football. And that meant, all right, well, that you got to have a certain number of teams here, a certain number of teams there. Everyone plays the same number of games. That's not college football. College football is totally unique. Notre Dame doesn't, until this moment, play in a conference. Uh, Georgia does play in a conference. Alabama and LSU never play at a neutral site. Georgia, Florida only play at a neutral site. There are all kinds of little idiosyncrasies about college football, I think, that add to the flavor and uniqueness of the sport. This is a sport unlike any in the world. And so the Georgia-Florida example, this is just one example. If you look at college football as sort of a Christmas tree, it's just one of the ornaments on the tree that I don't have a problem with. I actually love it because I know... Every other game, you know, you, you said you're a Tennessee fan, Tristan. So, you know, if even if you don't so much care for the Georgia-Florida, that's one event. When you guys play Georgia, it's going to be in Neyland every other year. When Alabama plays LSU, you're going to be able to watch that a couple of weeks later, either in Tuscaloosa or Baton Rouge. So we just kind of, it's like a buffet. You get a little bit of everything instead of walking up to the buffet and it's all collard greens. I love collard greens, but if you don't like them, It's not going to be a fun day at the buffet for you, my friend. So I like a little bit of everything in college football, and I I love that atmosphere now. I really think if you went to the game, you'd probably have your mind changed there, Tristan. Noah is next up. I appreciate that you brought to light the awful situation in Louisiana with the hurricane, hoping and praying those down there are safe. Endorse that, second that, and we continue to urge you. This is me talking for the moment. We continue to urge you, please reach out and help the folks in Cameron Parish and Lake Charles, Louisiana, any way you can. Since then, we've just had another hurricane come on shore. Talked to some folks in Pensacola yesterday that decided to ride it out. Some bad flooding happening in the Florida Panhandle, the Alabama coast, all the way up through my hometown of Columbus, Georgia. Got about half a foot of rain yesterday. But the folks down there need your help. So please continue to reach out and help. I know a few of you have reached out and asked how. I've gotten feedback that a few of you have done that. So thank you so much for that. All right, Noah continues his question. My question is, out of every college football game you've been to, which was your absolute favorite and why? I've only been to a few games, but my favorite was the 2014 ACC title game between Florida State and Georgia Tech. Noah, I tried and tried and tried. I couldn't narrow this down to one, so I wrote down a few. I was on the, let's see, one, two, three, four. Okay, I was on the field for every single one of these games I'm about to list. Twenty seventeen. Alabama-Georgia National Championship game. That's the second and 26th game. I think that's at the top of my list and probably always will be, unless I have some sentimental favorite that overtakes that. But you'll never, to, to, to me, I don't think anyone in this business could ever experience anything. I don't think any fan, especially if you were invested, double especially if you were invested on the Alabama side of things, I don't think anyone could ever experience anything like that. That was the most surreal moment. It was the most time standstill moment that I've ever witnessed in person or on TV, to be honest with you. And also, it was in Atlanta. I was working down the road, one hour down the road in Columbus. So that's, that was my drive home after the game. I didn't get home 
until I think it was 8.45 or 9 a.m. the next morning. We just stayed there. Like the folks who had worked the event just kind of stayed there. When I say time stands still, that makes it pretty obvious, doesn't it? Uh, The other one involving that year, that 2017 season, was the Georgia at Notre Dame game. It was the first time I had ever been to go to a game at Notre Dame because I only cover teams. At that point, I was only covering teams in the South. So, you know, stands to reason we didn't have many visits to, to South Bend, Indiana. But we made the drive up there back. Same day. Good old-fashioned turn and burn. And that was a really, really fun time. That was another one where I kind of lingered a little bit longer than I would after a game. I'm normally out of there about a about an hour and a half, two hours after the game ends. I stayed there a little bit longer, and I just kind of walked around empty stadium up there and just kind of, like, I, I remember sitting on one of the bleachers, just sitting there for like five, ten minutes, thinking, how in the world have you entered a world wherein someone is paying you to come up here and do this? And for the record, I still don't have an answer to that. How about 2019 LSU Alabama? Last year, some of the biggest stakes, biggest spotlight, biggest stage of any game that you'll ever see in the regular season. That was a fun time. Had to get there six hours early. Secret Service. Really fun chatting with Secret Service. You know, the bad part, if you're at a game at any point with any president when they're coming in is you got to get there early. But the fun part is Secret Service is there early too, and they don't have anything to do for a long time. So you can just chat them up and, you know, you can ask them 15 questions and 14 they can't answer. But when you finally stumble upon that one question they can't answer, you go, whoa. So that was really, really fun. Also, the game wasn't bad. 2016 LSU-Auburn. I've talked about this one before. I've told entire stories about this one. This was the game where it was a clock winding down. LSU's driving on Auburn. LSU, three, two, one, zero. Snap. Gets the playoff, or so it seems. Touchdown. LSU wins. Review. Uh-oh. Didn't get the snap off in time. LSU loses. So I was in the LSU corner. I was down there on the field, but I was in the corner end zone where it looks like they had scored and I was around the LSU fans. So I heard all the noise you would possibly hear from a road team winning a game in dramatic fashion. And then I also witnessed the overturn and then you witnessed an entire stadium explode. And I remember Leonard Fournette and the guys there just like collapsed on the field. And then that was the, also the game Les Miles would go on to be fired from. That was his last game as the head coach at LSU. And I've told that story before, watching that kind of entire sequence play out after the game and watching him film his coach's show and his wife standing on the field with her back to him, not even able to look on because she understands what's coming. He knew what was coming. That was I'm not saying that was fun to watch. I'm just saying the entire experience, if it was going to happen, where else would you rather be than there to witness it? Because, I mean, it's part of, for better or for worse, the fabric of what makes the SEC totally unique unto, to me, any other conference in America. Again, sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better. The 2018 Alabama-Georgia SEC championship game was pretty incredible. That's the year after they played in that same building in Atlanta for the championship. And that was the one where two is in the game. He's out. Jalen Hurts comes back in the game after being benched against the same team by the in the year before. And that was really emotional. There were a lot of folks, the head coach over there at Alabama included, Mr. Saban, very emotional. 
to the degree that I had never seen before. In his post-game interview when they won it, he was emotional. Up that tunnel, he was infinitely more emotional than that. I can just tell you, I witnessed that firsthand. So that one is one I will never forget. And I'll tell you the final one is the year that Dabo and Clemson won their first national championship. I was down in Tampa at that game. And that was the one where, with one second left, they ran a a pick play as beautifully designed as any pick play you'll ever see. And they pull off a national championship win. And that was a hungry fan base. And they got served that night. And boy, did they eat. Boy, did they ever eat. All right, next up, Matthew How significantly do you expect fans and recruits and administrators to evaluate the results of this upcoming year, considering all the external factors and complications? I'm a Tennessee fan. I'm already preparing myself for a tough year based on the struggles we've had with COVID. I'm really hoping a weak year in the win-loss column doesn't kill our positive momentum that was surrounding the program before, because the coaching staff really has no control over. Matthew, I agree with you. I was asked this question yesterday. I was on with Trey Wallace and the guys in Knoxville on uh, Fox Sports Radio there, and they asked me sort of a version of the same question you did. And um, here's the way that I looked at it. The way I look at it is, on one hand, from a rational perspective, everything you said is right. Tennessee has been decimated behind the scenes by COVID and contact tracing and guys having to sit out. Jeremy Pruitt the other day openly said, we're going to have to carry our camp structure into the season one or two weeks. Think about that. Camp. We're going to have to carry our camp structure when you're trying to formulate and solidify a team, a football team that you're going to play games with. They're having to carry that structure into the season. And he's just basically, he wasn't even really shy or or guarded about it. He was just flat out telling the media there, we are still trying to build a team. And that was my question as a follow-up and still is my question. When do you have a football team? When do you have a team and not just a collection of individuals and a depth chart? That's not a football team. There is this intangible sort of cohesion and synergy. And there's this, again, this glue that makes a team instead of just a group of guys. And you have to go through things like you have a minimum baseline that you need to be able to do to hopefully formulate that. Sometimes even in the best years where there's no COVID, you don't ever get that happen. You certainly have a hard time doing it, though, if you've got all these external factors and roadblocks, as you said, that have been thrown in front of you. So when do you have a team? Now, as I said, it's rational to think what I just said and what you just said is reality. But here's what else we know. Rationale does not have a place in the sport once it kicks off. Very little of it. Let's just say very little exists in perspective and all that. Because here's what I could just as easily see people coming at me with on the other side, Matthew. I could just as easily see someone say, well, okay, yeah, Tennessee dealt with COVID, but so did everyone else. Think about, for instance, if you play a game in pouring down rain and you lose the game, inevitably, a bunch of fans are going to say, well, I mean, it was raining and we had to play in the rain. And someone else is going to say, yeah, but it rained for both teams. And that's true. Meaning, As long as the factors were equal, as long as the playing field was still equal, there's no excuse. There's no more excuse to be had than in a normal situation. And I think someone's going to say that. I think many someones would say that about Tennessee this year. If they were to go four and six and someone said, well, COVID, someone else, or maybe, as I said, five someone else's would say, yeah, but it it COVIDed on everyone to steal the rain analogy. It COVIDed everywhere. It did. That's true. But Fractional degrees of change, program to program, 
could be the difference in two dozen players being out. And so this is as big a case-by-case basis as you should ever see or hope to ever see in the sport. It's not even. On one hand, it is even perceptionally, but it is really not even. So I hope, like you do, Matthew, that people are able to look at the season for what it is and not for what it isn't. And what it isn't is normal. It's legitimate, but it's not normal. Two very different concepts there. Juan is next up. Josh, do you think that the Mac ends up being the biggest loser in this whole situation? By following the Big Ten off a cliff, they are now in no position to play while the big boys play in their same footprint. The Big Ten's back, the Mac's not. Meanwhile, the Sun Belt and the American are rolling too. Juan, well, the Mac's not a winner here. It should be noted, though, the Mac did not follow the Big Ten. The Mac made their move, and then the Big Ten made their move. Now, the Big Ten has since backtracked after famously Larry, or not Larry Scott, what in the world am I thinking there, after Kevin Warren said, we will not revisit this. Well, then they revisited it. And so they're back. The Mac is not. And as you said, the Sun Belt, still good to go. The American, still good to go. I will not pretend to know all the factors that were in play behind the scenes that led to the Mac's decision. It could be that it was a heavily politicized decision. It could be that there were zero politics involved whatsoever. I don't know. I'm not privy to it. I won't pretend to know. But I will say, regardless of what the circumstances were, it's hard to view the Mac as anything other than an an ultimate loser in this whole thing, not disparaging the character, but just in terms of you're either plus or minus. Well, it's a big minus for them. And they are, unlike their brethren in the Big Ten, ill-equipped to deal with this kind of impact. You've already seen the impact, as a matter of fact. You've seen sort of the windfall up there of all kind of budget cuts and programs being axed entirely from athletic departments. This is just the beginning of that. So yeah, I, I worry about the MAC being able to sustain its image as you know it in the future. If the Big Ten would have canceled their season, you would have seen some people lose their jobs. You would have seen financial impact. You would have seen a bunch of really tough headlines. But Wisconsin football would have looked the same to you next year. Iowa football would have looked the same. I don't know that Akron football will look the same next year. Like I, I One of my biggest concerns is waking up one day and seeing a headline, 24-7 Sports overnight, one of our desk guys has put a headline up, Mac program considering shuttering their football team. Like That would be worst case. And while I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, I haven't heard anything like that, That is one of my biggest concerns. Chris, next up, asks, how do you feel about two quarterback systems? Chris, I'm glad you asked this because I had a back and forth with someone today. Someone dropped one of the most ignorant statements in all of sports to me. There's a big difference between stupidity and ignorance, by the way. Ignorance is just not really knowing anything about something. You could have a rocket scientist that's ignorant about cooking. So someone was ignorant about quarterback play today. And someone told me when talking about the Georgia quarterback situation, well, you know, if you got two quarterbacks, you don't have any quarterbacks. And it was so ironic that this was coming from a Georgia fan because I had to remind that Georgia fan that it hasn't been more than three or four years where in back-to-back seasons, you got beat in a national title game and an SEC title game by a team playing two quarterbacks. One of them's name was Tua Tungavailoa. The other one's name was Jalen Hurts. And they beat you both times and kept you from winning championships. So was the answer Alabama had no quarterbacks or did they have two quarterbacks? 
So I know what this is rooted in. What it's rooted in is sometimes when you have a quarterback battle going on this close to the start of the season, sometimes it means no one has separated themselves, and that means your head coach and your offensive coordinator and your staff, they haven't found one guy that can get the job done yet. But that's not always the case, and this is irrelevant. This is totally independent of anything happening at Georgia right now because you didn't even ask about Georgia. I'm using them as an example. It could be that once JT Daniels is medically cleared, oh, he's good enough to win the SEC. And it could be Dewan Mathis is good enough to win the SEC. It could be that neither of them are good enough. So the two quarterback system question that you're asking me, I guess my answer is it depends on how many you can win with. Do you have two quarterbacks you feel like you can win with? Or are you playing two quarterbacks because you're not totally sure you can win with either one of them, so you're hoping a combination of the two ends up producing, in the aggregate, one winning quarterback? If that's the case, then no, I don't like the two-quarterback system. But if you've got two guys you think you can win with, we just mentioned Alabama. It Listen, they believe Mac Jones and Bryce Young are both good enough to play this year. I think Alabama's got a two-quarterback system this year. And I don't think anyone's going to suggest that coming into the season, but I'm telling you right now, before the end of this year, if no one gets hurt, if no one has to sit out for contact tracing or whatever, if things just go off without a hitch, I think Alabama's got a two-quarterback system this year. So Georgia may have one and Alabama may have one, and I feel 180 degrees opposite, program to program. All right, next up is, uh, man, I didn't get a name on this. Oh, I'll tell you who it is. It is They Took All the Good Names. That's the poster's name in the podcast review section. So uh, They Took All the Good Names said, You said 24-7 is the best recruiting service for ranking recruits. Does that mean when you're looking at star ratings, you value the 24-7 rating over the composite rating for a player? Uh, there are, are, there's a very fine way to answer this to me. So I value the composite rating. That's the sort of quote-unquote industry standard. That's what you'll hear most people reference. That's what you'll hear us reference. It, it allows total transparency. It factors in, excuse me, hiccup. It bakes in every rating from other services to where you get, in theory, a more well-rounded evaluation of a player. Here's where I value our guys. I see the process here. I know the manpower that's put in. I know the infrastructure that's in place. And so I know there is no one doing a more thorough job. I say this with bias, but it's not really biased because I said this long before I ever got here. I would talk about it so much when I was down in Columbus that people thought I worked for 24-7 when I was in Columbus. And I can assure you I didn't. I just wasn't blind. So I can see. And a lot of you understand what I mean by this. So what I view this as is I'll take the industry standard being the composite rating but if I see our guys and I see the 24-7 rating on a kid vastly different than the composite rating, I'm going to assume our guys are ahead of the industry. That's where I land on that. So in other words, for those of you who have no clue what we're talking about here, the way that I, if I were a tight end playing here in Nashville, if, if I were rated by rivals and ESPN and 24-7 sports, the way that 24-7 does it is they have a composite rating, which is where they take the average of all the services for me, Mr. Tight End in Nashville, and then they spit out a composite score. But then they also have, as part of that composite, they also have our individual 24-7 sports player rankings. So what I'm saying is 
if Rivals had me as a three-star and ESPN had me as a three-star and, you know, 24-7 Sports had me as a high four-star, I'm going to value, obviously, in this case, but I'm going to value in any case the 24-7 rating there just because I lean that way and always have. Matthew is next up. Josh, I was wondering if you could rank the big three recruiting hotbeds in California, Texas, and Florida. I go Florida, California, Texas, Matthew, in that order. Florida is because I don't think that there is anything that you can go there and not find. Big-time offensive line and defensive line talent comes out of there. Great speed in the defensive backfield. You've seen several really high-quality linebackers come from there. Every kind of offensive skill you could ever want. A lot of quarterbacks, half of that's cheating because you can go to IMG Academy in Florida. But I think everybody goes to Florida for an obvious reason. California would be next up. Uh, California is kind of the same as I would describe them as Florida. I think you probably, um, you know, if you're in the market for quarterbacks, you're probably in an average year more likely to find high caliber quarterbacks on the West Coast in California. So I, the reason I didn't put California above Florida is because I think year to year, if I were looking at line play, I would probably value the line play that I can get out of Florida over California. Again, uh, not a huge gap there, to be honest with you. And then Texas would be third. And the reason with Texas is because I've viewed it, rightly or wrongly, I've thought of Texas as a place where the players come out of there. And when the players come out of there, sometimes they've been so well coached and they've been so highly developed because everybody's got their act together there from the peewee leagues to the junior high to the high school to the college levels. Everyone's on the same page. And so guys get really, really good, as good as they're going to get pretty quickly. And I look at Texas guys sometimes, and I wonder, people think maybe a Texas kid underachieves at the college level, but I often wonder, is it just because their potential was already maxed out because the system in Texas did such a good job of of developing them that what you would normally expect for a kid to increase his performance 40% in college was never possible? Because the kid was already playing at the highest level he was capable of. That happens in Texas a lot. Uh, that's not a knock. It just, there's not that unknown. There's not that factor in that role that you're going to play in the development of that kid. If he's maybe from Florida or California, that you get from Texas. Now that is anecdotal. That's not an across the board evaluation. The other thing with Texas is the line play, I don't think is as high quality in Texas year to year, as it is in Florida and California. So I can go to Texas if I'm recruiting specific positions. I can go there and I can hang out there all my career and it will deliver for me every year. But any given cycle, if I'm in the market for high caliber offensive linemen, I don't know that I'm getting that out of Texas every year. I know I'm going to get it out of Florida. I know I'm going to get it out of California. So I don't think that that will be taken the right way by my listeners in Texas, and we have a lot of them. But if you guys will email me the years, and I need like a 10-year slice now, where Texas has matched up very favorably in producing high-caliber O-line and D-line play on par with California and Florida, I'll revisit that answer. Now, next up, Adam's got a really good question. It's about the old fad, which was opting out. Opting out is, it's so August, okay? It's September now. The thing to do in September is opt in, So we're about to talk about opting in and how it's about to impact a lot of programs right after this. All right. Adam says, I love the show. Thanks to you and Colin. I'd love to hear him speak on air at least once. 
Do you think some Ohio State players initially opted out because they thought it was pointless to practice and not play? And if they're opting back in because there are games now, does that affect the depth chart and the locker room? All right, first, to address the Colin issue, Colin is going to remain an enigma. The closest Colin will ever come, he's the director, by the way, for Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, guy that has like 14 arms. There's no way that one person should be able to do what Colin does. Colin prepares every element for our show. Colin produces all the lower thirds for our show via live text. Now, that's that's having to change those on the fly. Colin prepares every element in terms of video and B-roll. He prepares every transition. He prepares every graphic. He also live directs the show. He communicates with me, which a line producer would normally do, not a director. All of these things Colin is doing, and we don't pre-record that show. That show is live as live can be. To this day, we have not had a single human error on Colin's side. I, I screw up all the time. Colin has not had a single human error. And Colin had never directed this show when I got here. And from Bell One, it was like he'd been working for CBS Sports or ABC Sports or ESPN for 20 years. Really, really incredible. So anyway, I say all that to say this. As good as Colin is as a director, Colin is an enigma. He is not coming on air. The closest he's going to get to coming on air is when I was doing a show Tuesday night, one of the little stars that I have off to my left, those little plastic stars that I stole off Pat's desk in our office because no one's in our office anymore. And I put them on the desk because, hey, five stars. We work for 24-7 Sports. Voila. Well, one of them fell because I got a little animated. So one of them fell. And I said, Colin, one of our stars fell. And I didn't mean for him to leave the wheel, which he did live, and leave the control room and come in the studio and fix the star for me. But I say that because of this. Colin's hand made it on air. And his shadow made it on air. That's as close as you'll ever get to seeing Colin on air. You're going to have to use what we call in radio world theater of the imagination. You're going to have to imagine what Colin looks like. I think of Colin as just a living, breathing angel. But you can think of him however you want to. That's part of the fun of theater of the imagination. Anyway, so you talked about opt-outs. I talked about Colin for five minutes. Let's talk about opt-outs, though. Yes, I think clearly the Ohio State players opted out because they saw no point in practicing without the hope of a season. Now they're opting back in because they have a season. I think that's really cut and dry as it appears on the surface. But the second part of Adam's question here is, when they opt in because there are games now, do you think that affects the locker room and the depth chart? Well, it affects the depth chart in only a positive way. The locker room question's funny. This is happening at LSU, too. Who was it? Neil Farrell the other day opted back in at LSU. Um, Tyler Shelvin is talking about opting back in at LSU. Now, the Xbox crowd looks at this and says that can only be good news. And maybe it is. Hopefully it is. Certainly, it's more good news than bad news. But in Xbox world, you're not dealing with real human beings. In real life, you're dealing with real human beings. And so here's what we cannot know. What we cannot know is, how's that perceived internally? Because I can tell you, for better or worse, right or wrong, however you want to categorize it, when guys opt out, there are people in that locker room that think, those guys just quit on me. Again, right or wrong, you have your own view, but I'm telling you, definitively, some people in that locker room look at you and say, you quit on me. Okay, but that's fine because they're done with you. But then when you opt back in, they look at it and say, hold up now. 
I, no, I, I didn't get to walk out for two weeks and take a little mini vacation. Why does this guy get to walk out and then come right back in and get his job back? I'm not telling you I know that's happening at Ohio State or LSU. In fact, I haven't heard that at all. What I am saying is, in a very generic sense, regardless of the team, just peel the logos off the helmet, just regardless of the team, generic university, you tell me you couldn't see that being an issue? Absolutely you could see it. So that's the intangible in nature that we're having to look at here on top of depth chart as something to just keep an eye on, because you'll never hear it now. You will never hear it. Here's the only time you'll hear it. The only time you'll hear it is if Ohio State loses two games. I don't know what universe that would happen in. But if Ohio State loses two games, if LSU goes 6-4, and four, mark my words, at the end of the year, the hottest rumor on any LSU or Ohio State message board would be, our chemistry was shot when guys opted out and we allowed them to come back. That would be the talking point. You know it, and I know it. You never hear about chemistry issues on teams that win the national championship. You only hear about locker room issues and how things were off all year when you don't win. And I can tell you, some of the better teams that you've seen in the last decade and a half had all kinds of internal problems. I can tell you that. I witnessed it. So I can tell you, some of the teams that win, they got, they got infighting all over the place. They got drama all over the place. Maybe they just overcame it. And so... It's only convenient to talk about when you lose, is my point. And I don't know that it's going to happen with either of those teams. But I think, Adam, it is something that bears watching. Jacob said, how much does the Iowa State loss hurt Brock Purdy's draft stock as a top quarterback? Jacob, I don't know, to be clear. And I was, I'm very high on Brock Purdy. I, he was my guy that I identified as being low rated in our 24-7 sports top 50 players. We had him at 35. I thought he belonged higher. But... I don't. I never knew that he was a first-round lock to begin with. J- Brock Purdy's a guy who um, I think some people fall prisoner of expecting to get twenty percent better just because he's back again. And some guys, sometimes guys just are who they are. Uh, Jake Fromm is the most recent example of a guy that I think got imprisoned with false expectation because he played in twenty seventeen and played at a good enough level to get Georgia within a whisker of a national championship. And so automatically he's returning. Well, that means he's got to get 20% better, right? No, he just kind of was who he was. And Brock Purdy, maybe he just is who he is. And who he is is fine. Who he is is a better option than Iowa State's had at quarterback in quite a while. I can assure you of that. But maybe he's not a first-round talent. Like There's a big gap between not being good enough to be drafted in the first round and sucking. There's a large Grand Canyon between those two statements. And maybe Brock Purdy's just somewhere in between there, a lot closer to the side of the canyon that has him going in the first round than the side that has him sucking. Uh, it was a bad first week. Listen, they had a bad first week last year. Uh, maybe they'll rectify it. Maybe a month later, we'll talk about him as the most improved player on the most improved team in the country over the past month. All right, a couple of more here. Let's go to AJ. I'm curious as to your approach with game predictions. Do you give your score predictions for each game or just the odds to win the games? What is your score prediction for South Carolina, Tennessee coming up September 26th? I'm curious to know, instead of just who you're predicting to win the East and the West, who are you predicting to win each game in the SEC on September 26th? AJ, the way we do that is I will spotlight the biggest games, the most noteworthy games. And we will do individual game capsules and individual game breakdowns. On all those games, we do that on Late Kick Live, normally the Tuesday show. 
is when we're going to do that. For instance, this week we did Louisville-Miami. It's still a pretty light week, so that's the one game we broke down. You can go to the YouTube channel right now, 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, and find that game breakdown. What I do in those games is I give you a game capsule. That's a graphic Colin makes, and I show you what the current Vegas line is, and then I develop my own numbers for every game. I I work with a guy I've worked with for a long time, and an entire system was developed just to generate our own number on a game. I do not give a projected final score. What I do is I give a projected margin of victory. I learned a long time ago, if you're in the media business, don't predict final scores. That's stupid. Because think about this for a second, AJ. Let's say that Louisville is playing Miami Saturday. So let's say that you say, I think Louisville is going to win that game 41-38. You think Louisville is going to win by three points, right? Yeah, 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 says AJ. I think they're going to win 41-38. I think it's going to be a shootout. It's just going to be an utter track meet. And then Louisville wins 17-14. You know what happens when you show up at work Monday? People look at you and say, you're an idiot, dude. You were nowhere close. And you look back and say, what do you mean? I, I said they're going to win by three. They won by three. Well, yeah, that's true, AJ. And if you would have stopped there, you'd be fine. But you had to go and predict that final score. And once you predict the final score publicly, instead of just sticking with margin of victory, you outed yourself. I don't take that added step. I just give you margin of victory. That's what our system is designed to do. It spits out a projected final score. I never release it to the public, though. If you guys want to start this little side fund wherein you have tiers of membership and you pay $1,000 a month to see that, okay, be my guest. But until then, what I do, AJ, is I give you margin of victory. I tell you, for instance, with our game capsule this week on Louisville, Miami, Louisville is currently a two to two and a half point favorite in Vegas. We actually have Miami winning the game by about 1.65 points, so one and a half points. So our number is Miami minus one and a half right now. And if you value that, and I think you guys who have been with me a while have learned to, and if you haven't, take your time. Don't blindly buy into anything, especially when you're actually putting money on it. Uh, you'll learn to value it too, and once you do, you'll, you'll understand how to properly interpret that number. And so for every big game we break down, AJ, that's how we'll do it. Now, for a game like uh, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, we probably won't be breaking that game down, but if someone asks about it, I'll just very quickly give you what our numbers think about it. And if we have a wide enough discrepancy, you know, if, if Arkansas is favored by one and we have Vandy minus seven, it would probably be one of my five official plays on the Ramen Noodle Express that I give out during the week. And I recap that on Thursday. And those are our five official plays. That's the one I'm handing out. Those are the games I will have a vested interest in, if you catch my drift. All right, next up is Freddie Von Wigglestein. Or Stein. I know I got the first two right. This is a good question, though. He says, No one seems to be talking about the dynamic of giving everyone an extra year of eligibility. How's it going to work for kids in the incoming freshman class? How are schools going to afford to pay for scholarships for five classes? What part of the university system is going to take a cut to make it happen? Is it just not a big deal? Or are they ignoring it because they don't want to face the repercussions? Also, the poster named Gators Are Stupid is in fact stupid. Thank you, Freddie. I'll be happy to be the surrogate in your war against Gators Are Stupid. As for the first point, though, this is a good question. And Freddie, to answer your question, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen because I don't think it was that well thought through. I had an assistant coach express as much to me 
when this was passed and they said, all right, everyone's going to get a free year of eligibility. It was like they walked in, made the announcement, and then they just left like it was an open house. And they walked in, they ate the food, and then they left. And everyone else is left standing around holding the empty plate. Well, the universities are left standing around holding the plate here saying, "Uh, you guys going to give us money for this? You guys going to help us pay for this? Now, here's what is very aggravating to me. People hear this announcement. And then they hear Freddie's question here and they say, what do you mean who's going to pay for it? Look at all this money these programs make. No, no, no. You're looking at the money the top programs make. This was not a rule that said, all right, if you're, if you're ranked in the top 10, then you're going to give everyone an extra year of eligibility. No, they told Miami of Ohio. They told UNLV. Uh, they told Arizona. They told those programs, all of you are giving an extra year of eligibility. I don't think all of them are going to, to be honest with you. It's not a mandate. It said they're eligible to. I think there are going to be some universities that say, unless we get financial help here, we can't afford to honor these scholarships. And this is happening not just in D1, D2, D3, when they started making announcements in the spring for the spring sports that got canceled or postponed because of COVID. And they said, everyone who plays that sport, you're going to get an extra year of eligibility. I can tell you right now, People just threw their hands up in some athletic departments and said, we can barely afford to field these teams now. What what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to pay for this? Scholarships have monetary value. How in the world are we supposed to pay for this? How in the world are we supposed to pay the, the freight that it costs to have kids on campus? A lot of folks talk about revenue sharing and all these absurd demands that some of the Pac-12 players made. It's absurd because of what we're talking about here. If that's all it takes to fracture the entire financial standing of athletic programs, they're not exactly as flush with cash maybe as you think they are top to bottom. So, Freddie, you make a good point. It is a big deal. And, yes, I think a lot of people are ignoring it because they don't want to talk about the repercussions right now. So you made a good point. You're, you're right on the money there, and you're not alone. A lot of people behind the scenes are wringing their hands too. All right, really good show today. We've got Late Kick Live coming up tonight. Uh, we will have final picks. We will have the final three picks in the Ramen Noodle Express. We're already on Duke minus six. We are already on Notre Dame minus 25 and a half. Where else are we going? I don't know. We spun the wheel. It'll stop tonight. Give us five-star reviews if you haven't already and subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel as well as this podcast. I thank you so much for listening. This has been Late Kick Extra. I'm Josh Pate. Have a great rest of your Thursday.